Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 208. Quick announcement before we jump into the interview is we have a virtual cohort coming up. So what that is, is we have the Intentional Growth Course, and it is a group of business owners, six to 10 business owners, we cap it off at 10, where everybody gets the Intentional Growth Course, and we go over it together as a group over the course of four weeks. We just wrapped one up. It was an absolute blast, a lot of good conversations, and it keeps you on pace so that way you go through the material together, and then you can bounce ideas off of other people. If you're interested, we kick off the first call on September 15th, but if you're interested, go to arcona.io, go to the digital course page, and then go down to the virtual cohorts plus coaching. It's $14.50, and then we will send you an email for the four calls starting September 15th. Come join us. It's going to be a blast. It's a lot of fun, and having others hold you accountable and learning from others is the definitely the way to go. So go check it out or let us know if you have any questions. As far as today's guest, I'm super pumped to have her on the show. Her name is Kellyanne, and she was a former attorney that turned entrepreneur, and after deciding to move away from the world of litigation, she started an e-commerce business from the ground up selling products on Amazon. She intentionally decided her ultimate business goal was to sell the company, and she spent the next couple years learning everything she could possibly know about how to successfully exit a business. After her seven-figure exit, Kellyanne is using her Amazon and exit expertise to help other Amazon sellers and business owners grow their companies with the end in mind. Today, Kellyanne shares her story of growing and selling her business and why she's super passionate about helping other owners get out of the hamster wheel, as she puts it, from the very beginning. And I'm super excited about this because I've been lucky to get to know Kellyanne and her business partner, Paul Miller, who has a company called Cozy Phones. Together, they partnered up to create a podcast and a company called Amazing Exits, and they've become a channel partner of Arcona to bring the intentional growth course and the coaching along with our fractional CFO services to the Amazon selling world and e-commerce world. I'm excited because she has the same goal of educating and working with business owners to approach their company's growth with a specific end in mind. And she brings us an awesome e-commerce specific expertise and understands the power of helping owners de-risk their lives and have peace of mind by understanding that they will eventually be able to sell a valuable company. Kellyanne advocates for a powerful mindset for business owners who you shouldn't wake up one day and just decide to sell your business. Instead, you should be waking up one day and decide to plan to sell your business and then build the plan to get there. Not only does Kellyanne talk about her story of growing and selling the company, but Kellyanne gives us a bunch of details about how she started her brand, how she sourced out the products, things going on with supply chains, literally just a bunch of gold nuggets. So thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Kellyanne. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Kellyanne, how are you? I'm great, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. This is going to be fun because we now got you on the show. You and I have been spending a lot of time on the phone because 
yourself and uh, one of our mutual contacts that uh, you'll probably be talking about. Have, we've been talking a lot about our course as you've been going through it, but you've sold a business. You're now in a whole new world. There's just a lot of, a lot of stuff to talk about. So, but it's going to be fun for me to go back and actually hear uninterrupted your story instead of all the other <laughs> conversations we've been having. <laughs> cool. Well, you know, it's it's been so great spending this time with you and getting to know you, Ryan, and I'm really grateful that you're having me on. Yeah. So let's, uh, for the, just for the listeners who are not familiar with you, your brand, let, let's kind of give you a little overview of, um, what your, well, you know, what your business was, how you got to where you are today. And then honestly, like, how did you become an entrepreneur? Was it accidental? Was it on purpose? Or maybe take us back to day one. Sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't start out in life with an entrepreneurial mindset. I come from very, you know, humble background, very, you know, middle-class background, and, uh, you know, I knew that I wanted to get a higher education and figured out pretty soon in my college career that I wanted to become an attorney. So that was like my path. And that's what I thought my future was going to be is practicing law for, you know, my working life. And so went to college, went to law school, practiced law for about 10 years, civil litigation. What kind of law was it? I don't know if, I, if you told me that. Yeah, civil litigation. So uh, mostly on the insurance defense side. So did a lot of like medical malpractice, a lot of insurance defense work, personal injury, construction defects. You know, that was mostly the realm that I was practicing in. And, you know, I loved it. It, it definitely was really stressful. Um, but, you know, when you're young and you just have, you know, you just graduate from law school and you've got the world at your fingertips and you're not, you know, married or have kids, it's very easy to like slave away at your job, right? And, and climb that ladder. And, you know, I definitely did that for a few years. But, you know, things change as you get older, as you settle down. You know, I got married and had children and, you know, the life of a litigator just was not uh, conducive to me living the life that I wanted to live being a mom and a wife. It just, the two just did not, did not mesh. And it's so, hard to engineer more than 168 hours a week, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> I still, Ryan, to this day have nightmares about to <laughs> account for every six minutes of my time, like how I spent it. So I could justify to an insurance company who was paying the bills that that time was well spent, you know, like I still, still freak out about that sometimes. Well, you know, so this is going to be a fun lens as we, as you tell your story, because right before we jumped on, you were talking about, you know, getting off the hamster wheel as an entrepreneur. And that is a whole different hamster wheel compared yeah. to you. <laughs> like that, that's, that, that's literally like, you know, that, that there is no other, the, the exchanging money for time is. Yeah. Is, that's the epitome of trading your, you know, you don't make money unless you're working and, and working and accounting for every six minutes of your time. It doesn't get uh, <laughs> harder than that. So how did, how did you go from that to being an entrepreneur? Well, it wasn't a, you know, I was just on a podcast interview yesterday and it wasn't like I went straight from practicing law to being an entrepreneur. I actually was really lucky enough to just take some time off in between there and be a full-time mom. And you know, did everything with my babies as they, you know, were in their early years, you know, and very involved in their schools and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there was always this, you know, you know, little voice in the back of my head. Okay. Like once they, you know, really start getting into school, you know, you're going to have to find something to do and it's not going to be law. Um, you know, I did kind of dabble in some other areas of the law towards the end of my career, but just still really realized that I just didn't want to go back to law at all. So, um, I was a stay at home mom for a few years and then I just knew, Ryan, that I wanted to do something that I could work from my kitchen table if I had to or my home office and be internet-based. So 
I went down the whole trail of, you know, how to make money online basically (laughs) and uh, tried a lot of different things and learned a lot, but was not successful and certainly didn't generate any income from doing all these internet marketing things that I tried. And, you know, it's just super easy. All you have to do is build this beautiful sales funnel and then the money will just come through the door. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, learning all the technical aspects that go behind that plus the marketing aspect of it. Yeah. I learned a lot, but you know, it was like the whole time I just, I just felt like an uphill battle and you know, the, the whole make money online industry in general, it's, it can be pretty seedy. And so, you know, I, I would say I spent like a good year or two in that realm and that world. And I, I really didn't like it. I really didn't like the, the, the educators in that space and, and the opportunism that was there. So it, I definitely was like looking for it. something else. What didn't you like about it? It just, it just seems so like I couldn't get out of my head the fact that, you know, all these people are making money by selling people a dream of how to make money doing what they're doing. And it just, it all just seemed like we were all just this incessant um, pool of like cesspool of people just making money off of each other. I know that sounds like really, really bad. No, no, it's funny because I went down that rabbit hole like five years ago when I was starting the podcast. And I was like, well, I don't have a team of salespeople anymore. So I need to like automate this. And you just, I was like, this kind of feels like a fun house of people making money off of people that t- teach you how to do a webinar to make money on a webinar. I'm just like, what in the heck is this? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it was really hard to find underneath all those layers. Like what's the true value being exchanged here? Yep. Yep. So after you realized that you, that was not your jam, how did you, what was the, what was the pivot? Well, you know, in, in a lot of these groups that I was in, I, I, I did find some good people. And so, um, one of the groups that I was in, uh, taught this model of how to drop ship e-commerce products on different websites. And particularly at that time it was eBay and then, you know, slowly moved into Amazon. But so I started pursuing that model and started seeing success with it and really like very early on fell in love with just selling physical products. Like they're actually tangible. Something actually is exchanging money for an actual product, you know, not a digital product. And it uh, was something that just really resonated with me. And it it didn't take too long for me to really kind of um, formulate this desire to, you know, why, why couldn't I create my own brand of products? And it just so happened when I started to have that notion that a course came along into my inbox called Amazing Selling Machine. It's now called amazing.com. And it taught all about the model of launching, scaling a brand on amazon.com. So I jumped into that. It was a really good digital course. So there are plenty of great digital courses out there. So, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and through that, you know, really found, like I, I felt at home, like this is what I'm meant to do. So I'm excited to, uh, I want to uh, either peel that back for a second, or uh, maybe you, you can take it as you uh, tell your story, Kelly, is there's a lot of, because in in some of these other entre- entrepreneur groups that are that are e-commerce, and maybe then this is a good time for you to describe, Kelly, the e-commerce and the kind of the different variations of them for the listeners that may not be involved in this too much, where you have people like yourself, like when you started, where you're just you're drop shipping, so you're selling products, but then there's the Amazon channels, and then there's also the fact that you can also all, all of a sudden are starting to make your own products because those different dynamics, as you and I both know now, and we can talk further about, have different values long term 
as a business, right? Whether you're just re, you know reselling someone else, or whether you're drop shipping your uh, you know whether you're warehousing or not warehousing, or whether you're creating your own product, whether it's am, on Amazon or on Shopify, all those different strategies have different values that are sustainable down down long term. So maybe I don't know if that if that confuses anybody, but I want to make sure that as you talk about your journey and then the eventual exit, how those different in uh, different strategies might impact uh, the the end result. Absolutely. And, and definitely there are different models of selling. I'm going to, I'm going to classify it all as selling physical products online. That's what I classify as e-commerce in general. And there's Mm -hmm. many different models and you know, whether or not you're going to have a sellable transferable business depends on that model. Mm -hmm. So then, so when you started out, you were just selling other people's products. Is that so? You yes. was that on Amazon or on Shopify or how? Or was it on eBay? Or I what? was I was basically arbitraging from one website to another. So so that okay. was not a sellable business. That was a job basically. Okay, that's um, awesome. And yep. so I was finding products, let's say, on websites like Wayfair, and I would sell those on eBay. And so basically, there was just a an arbitrage type of play to be made there where people were paying more for the product on eBay and I would just ship it directly from the customer from Wayfair. Now, you know, that that's called online arbitrage. Basically, you know, other people get started in e-commerce with doing retail arbitrage where they go to physical stores and they buy products and then they resell them on Amazon or eBay. I don't enjoy shopping, like going, going out the store. <laughs> so that was never for me. Um, but it, it's certainly a way to get started and build up some cash flow. but that's not, that's not a business. It's a job. So there's, you know, wholesale. So if you can, if you can develop exclusive relationships with, you know, brand owners and sell their product, like be their exclusive distributor or seller, you know, there, there is value in that. You can build a really good cash flow business that way. And, you know, that potentially can be sold if you, you know, secure that exclusivity and can transfer that to a new owner. Um, but I would say that in e-commerce, in order to build a, you know, sellable, valuable asset, you need to be, you know, having your own products manufactured, basically building a brand. That's really where the big value is. Well, and I think what's interesting, your journey that you went on doing this is what I've been watching in the e-commerce space over the last few years, where there was a lot of arbitraging going on. People making really good money for it, but then all of a sudden you're like, well, it's not sellable. So then it was like, well, now I can maybe then go on to Amazon and resell stuff on Amazon. But maybe I should be warehousing my own stuff. Well, maybe I should be having my own Shopify site. And so they kind of just continue to evolve. And then all of a sudden now you're like literally in the traditional business model. <laughs> of like, exactly, exactly. And now you just kind of, you know, worked your way into it, like a normal business that a lot of, you know, main street companies have, which I think there's an interesting dynamic too, because a lot of main street companies now are trying to figure out how to go online and they're going the opposite direction, trying to figure exactly. out how to do it, <laughs> which exactly. has been a good opportunity both on both sides. Yeah, exactly. And specifically, you know, learning how to leverage the Amazon platform, you know, a lot of the big, you know, brands out there don't know a thing about Amazon and Amazon requires its own unique strategy. It's its own ecosystem. And so, you know, I like to say that, you know, no matter who you are, you know, if you're a Fortune 500 company or a small seller, you you have to be on Amazon, you have to have a good presence and you have to be able to control your brand, whether that's allowing you know, a reseller or distributor to sell your products on Amazon, or are you yourself taking control on the third party side, selling on Amazon, that that's really important. So I want to go back to your story and then continue your evolution, but make sure I want to put a pin in this comment because I have many clients that I'm working with currently right now, Kelly, that 
are in retail or they're in manufacturing. Specifically, I've got these two clients of mine that they're manufacturing and they go through the old rep groups. I mean, like just exactly what you could think of, like old school catalogs, like buy this shit out, you know, from this person. And they're like, hey, well, can't I just go to a website and buy this? But (laughs) they're like, yeah, well, we're going to like upset our rep groups. And so if we go online, we're going to, you know, there's all this problem, but I think COVID might have an interesting play to make it like, actually possible now. And uh, I think my old, my wife's old company that she used to work for did this and they went from like 20 million to like 45 million by going on to Amazon. So just put, let's put a pin in that Kelly, when you're talking a little bit more about what you're doing, the strategy for Amazon, because I, I think that there's options for discussion on that, but I want to go back to your evolution and then we can get there. Cool. Absolutely. So how did you go from the arbitrage into like, well, so we'll take us back. Sorry, I, I made a, taking this on a, on a rabbit hole. No, no, not at all. This has been, I mean, this is great. I think it fits really nicely into, into my journey. Cause you, you know, you try a lot of different things and you know, it used to be if you, you know, before this whole selling on Amazon, creating a brand and, and utilizing the Amazon platform to launch and scale that brand, you know, if you were going to create a product, like invent your own product or create a product you would have to go out through all those old channels, you know, try to get into retail. That's the old model. Now the new model is going direct to consumer online, you know, such as Amazon and then, you know, scaling from there and then eventually getting into retail. So, you know, I knew I wanted to create a brand. I had very specific goals for the type of brand I wanted to create. You know, I created a women's outdoor lifestyle brand and I was its target customer. So, you know, it was easy from that standpoint, you know, I created products that, you know, people like myself and people that I knew would, would love and use. And so, you know, not to make it sound so simple because I had to learn how to manufacture products, how to design products, how to source overseas. You know, I've been to China several times and that's where all my products were manufactured. So, you know, you had to learn a whole new skill set. And, you know, I, I can't put a price tag on that. Like, that's invaluable. Like, I, you know, I, I majored in international business in college. And, you know, now I can truly say I'm an international business person. You know, I've been to China. I've designed products. I've had them manufactured. I've had them, you know, sh- shipped over, you know, learned the whole logistics process that goes along with that and um, basically used Amazon um, because they've got access to the biggest database of customers to to reach those customers and sell my products. So where did you start? I mean, like when you say like, because like that might sound daunting for someone that wants to start their own product line or has, and there's a lot of a lot of business owners that could be listening that have an infrastructure, but like, like how in God's name do you even start, right? And like, like was it is it design? Are you dealing with like the intermediaries between yourselves and the manufacturers in order to get like prototypes done? And now especially supply chains are getting all blown up. I mean, as in yeah. like they're changing rapidly. So like how did like where do you how did you start and what were some of the milestones? Well, I think there I think there's a progression there. So when you're getting started out and starting out like most startups or entrepreneurs do on a shoestring budget, which was certainly me, I started my business with twenty five hundred dollars you know, the typical route is going to a platform like Alibaba and connecting Mm -hmm. with suppliers that way. And that's not to say that that's the best way to source products, but that's kind of where, if you're going to be manufacturing overseas, that's generally where you're going if you're getting started is on a site like that. Over the years, you know, I became much more sophisticated in terms of developing my supply chain and supply chain management and you know, meeting directly with manufacturers by going to China and then also working with 
you know, expert, you know, providers that, you know, provide you with all of the supply chain management. Um, but that comes with the cost and you can't do that until you're, you've grown your business and you're profitable and that can fit mm-hmm. within your margins. But I would say that that was one of the things that made selling my company highly attractive or my brand, I should say, is that I completely streamlined that supply chain to where, you know, it was one contact person, English speaking, can have anything designed, made in China, have it shipped over. Um, it made it pre- pretty seamless, but you know, that takes, that takes time. Um, and there certainly are a lot of, a lot more service providers out there now that one could go and hire to, to help with that process versus having to do it all on your own. So then it would, which makes sense. And, and I think there's a, it's funny cause I did a podcast 201 with uh, um, Dave deal about valuations where now because of COVID and trade wars and China, U S relations that there are cracks in supply chains going on everywhere. They're highly exposed. And I think that I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of people in your space too, Kelly, that they were doing a lot of, a lot more arbitrage and they might've been perceived as really awesome, valuable companies that you're just like, wait a second, you don't have a whole lot of control over this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's super obvious now because of lag times or you know, inventory is not turning or you can't get inventory or, I mean, that's, that's probably a, you've probably seen a lot of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was so lucky, Ryan. The the sale of my uh, brand closed in February of of this year of 2020. So right before everything hit, you know. But I um, keep in in close contact with the gentleman who purchased my brand, and so you know the fact that he has the supply chain manager to help navigate through all of this stuff was, I, I think, pretty valuable, and um, it made me feel really good about the That's fact awesome. that. Okay, you know, I mean, who could have predicted COVID happening, right? Like yep. even, even the gentleman told me that, you know, after COVID hit, it's like, oh my goodness, like, what have I done? I just bought this company and how all this stuff with China and everything else, but it all worked out. He's doing fine. He's doing great. The brand is doing great. You know, a, a lot of brands have suffered during this time. A lot have flourished during this time if their products, you know, were in demand. And it's also forced a lot of sellers to, you know, look elsewhere for their product manufacturing needs. You know, I mean, we Mm -hmm. all wish we could manufacture in the United States. That would be awesome. And for certain products, it's it's possible, but for a lot of them, it's not. So, you know, other Asian countries have become new kind of sourcing opportunities uh, along with, you know, South America and India. So it's definitely, um, I think started the chain uh, reaction of not being so reliant on China. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, you know, as you're, like, I don't know for time-wise uh, in your timeline, like how, how did you, as you're building this, these products, what, like, what was the evolution of the business? I mean, was it all on Amazon? Did you have your own website and sh- like a Shopify website or maybe kind of give an overview of the structure and as it evolved? Yeah. My, well, my primary sales channel was Amazon, but I did have my own website and I did, did spend, you know, probably the better half of over a year really trying to drive traffic to that website as opposed to Amazon. And one thing I feel very uh, strongly about is that, you know, the, the skill set that's required to optimize and excel on the Amazon channel is a completely different skill set than, you know, driving traffic to your own website. Amazon already has the traffic. You just have to figure out how to, you know, capture that. Um, if you're trying to drive traffic to your own website, you have to be really good at, you know, driving that traffic, whether it's from social media or from Google ads or from content marketing, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And so a lot of Amazon sellers go down this, this rabbit trail of, you know, trying to be everywhere where they're, they're really, their skill set <laughs> is on how to sell on Amazon. So 
I would caution, you know, Amazon sellers specifically to really focus on what they're good at and, you know, not be trying to do all this other stuff in other sales channels until you're at least at, you know, a million dollars in top line revenue. But, you know, there are a lot of, you know, huge e-commerce brand owners that have no presence on Amazon and they're doing great and they know how to drive that traffic. You, that's such a huge point, Kelly. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about like the, the online course stuff, because like, it's like, oh yeah, all you have to do is just drive what, uh, traffic to your website instead of Amazon. You know, well, conceptually, yes, but then that's two years worth of work and costs and distractions. And you know, what's the, what's the end result and what's the point, right? Cause it, it, it is way different compared to all the, where you're getting your traffic and your sales. Just it's they're different skill sets. Exactly. And I mean, you know, conversion rates are different on Amazon compared to your own e-commerce site, obviously. And a lot of Amazon sellers are selling products, you know, in the, you know, $30 or below price point. And it's really hard to make that profitable. Um, you know, you don't have, you know, and they're one-off products. So unless you have, you know, a subscription model, it's really hard to make that profitable when uh, doing it, you know, off of Amazon. That's a huge point. I mean, like, like, cause your, your client acquisition costs of paying for ads and paying and writing content and exactly. driving, you know, having customer support and so all that, all that goes into the profit margins that may or may not even be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So where in this, as you're, as you're building the business and you know, you think about the, just the stuff that you were talking about of growing the business, it's a shitload of work. Right, you know, you you just you learned global supply chain, as you said, while you were creating the business. You know, where did your mindset start to shift to go? Okay, what's the end result? Because like you and I, and maybe we, maybe we can just even talk about why you and I started talking uh, months ago and got introduced. Is like, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, right? They're just kind of almost like day trading on Amazon, and it's like, wait a second, what's the what's the ultimate goal of this? Where did you realize that there there needs to be some bigger picture here? And you you said before we get on the show, um, the hamster wheel. And I don't know if that ties into some story that you've got personally. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, I I feel like a lot of e-commerce sellers and specifically Amazon sellers are caught up in this hamster wheel, and they don't have the end in mind. They don't have any end in mind. And it's just a day in day out process of like you, like what you said, day trading. And, you know, I started to really think about this probably about two years into the business. I mean, I loved every minute of growing my brand and I I loved it, but you know, when you start to look at the ROI on your time invested in any activity and you know what, Obviously, as you get older, this becomes more pronounced. I mean, if you're, you know, 20 years old, you know, living at home with your parents and you're doing this business, I mean, you can grind 24 seven, right? But, you know, if you've got other things in life you want to do, <laughs> um, you start to really think about, okay, is, you know, thinking about what your value drivers are, as, as you point out in your course, Brian, and, and really, you know, what type of life do you want to have and building your business around your life you know, versus your life around your business. And so I had some pretty cathartic moments because I was building my life around my business and I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be so that it was the other way around, like that I had that time freedom to do what I wanted to do. And whether that meant completely systematizing my business and, you know, handing it off to somebody just to take in the cash flow. Or and grow it forever, and then pass it on to my kids as a legacy, or cashing out, taking some chips off of the table. I started to question all those things about two years in, and really made a conscious decision that I did want to build a business to sell it. 
And so, you know, I spent the next two years doing just that. And it was a two-year process from the time that I decided I want to build a business to sell. And then actually from the time that it actually sold, that was about a two-year process. And which we're going to get to, because I think the the pro, how long it takes people just underestimate. I was on this call, Kelly, actually before you and I got on the on the on the interview, and it's just like the point is the moment that you're out of energy. I've I've watched it too many times, and especially right now with all the shit going on, it's like it's hard to do hard work if you don't like the business or if you don't like it. I mean, it just is so painfully hard. And you did that, so you had that experience, but then you still had the energy to do. I'm assuming the energy to do it for two years because you yes. took so while took a while. So like what? was there something personal that you're going through or like, was there a situation that you were just like, I'm not doing this kind of work anymore. Like I have to reshift or I have to shift my mindset towards getting myself out of this hamster wheel. And like, where, and where did you turn and what were the, what were the things that you started doing differently after that shift happened? Yeah. So it, it wasn't one huge thing, Ryan. It was, it was a lot of different things, but it, it, it definitely started to feel like a hamster wheel. Like I started to have that realization. And as you just said, like if by the time, if you, if you all of a sudden wake up one day and you're like, I am tired, I can't do this anymore. You have waited way too long, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, and I, so I just had this epiphany that I would get to that point someday doing it because I had, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the journey, but I knew that there were just bigger things that I wanted to go on to do. Um, or other things, just different things that this is not something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. You know, there was other things that I wanted to experience and try both in business and in investing and also just from a personal lifestyle standpoint. So, you know, I, I, I like to say that you don't just wake up one day and decide to sell your business. You wake up one day and you decide to plan to sell your business. And and that's what, that's what I want to try to get across to business owners and specifically, you know, in my industry, Amazon and e-commerce sellers is that no matter what, and I know you agree with this, Ryan, like even if you never end up selling your business, you should always know the value of your business. It's an asset and you should know the value of that at all times because you never know what might happen in life. You might have a great opportunity where a strategic acquirer or a private equity firm comes along and wants to acquire your brand. And how are you going to even have any intelligent conversations with them if you don't even know what your brand is worth? So, you know, and, and vice versa, you could have a, a life event that you you have to sell and you don't want to sell it in a fire sale. You want to be able to get top dollar for all this equity that you've put into it. So I'm just really passionate about, you know, reaching brand owners early on, you know, even if they've just started their business with building the the business with an end in mind, like you like to say. So I, I love, there's a lot of tidbits in there that I really like, obviously, but you know, the, when you said, you know, you wake up and decide to plan to sell. So like when you started doing this, cause you know, one of the things that you and I reached out to, cause we're going to be partnering up and we can be talking about that in a little bit, but like, what was some of the challenges that you that you found, right? Because obviously, I built the course and our boot camps because learning was the hardest part, right? Trying to find the right information. What were some of the experiences that you found were difficult, right? Because you said the number one thing is to understand what the comp- what the value of the business or the brand is. What were what were some of the challenges that you were running into over those twenty four months as you were building these building blocks of knowledge? 
There, there were so many challenges, Ryan, because I found as I started looking for resources and information, and at, at that time, I didn't find your, your course. I didn't have your course. I didn't know it existed um, at that time. So there was like the information that was out there was so fragmented. And I just had to kind of piecemeal together all the pieces for myself. And that took a really long time. So I felt like in addition to running and operating my business, I also had to learn all this stuff and get my, you know, like PhD in exit planning. <laughs> and, you know, I just learned from a lot of different resources. I mean, one of the, the books that was pivotal to me in getting started was Built to Sell by John Warlow. And I know you know that book, and I know you've had him on your podcast. Um, and I found that to be very valuable. Um, there certainly wasn't any resources on, you know, how to build to sell an e-commerce or an Amazon brand-based company, you know. So, you know, and, and that's not necessary, you know. All businesses, you know, have things in common that make them sellable or not. And so I was just trying to take those principles and apply them to my circumstances. And I found it very challenging. And so, you know, now that I have this knowledge, I want to empower Amazon brand owners and, and e-commerce sellers with, you know, with basically this knowledge and education that I've gathered and, and help them along the way so it doesn't have to be so challenging and tough. When you were learning about valuations, what were some insights that you learned? What, did, you have, did you have to right-size your expectations and then how did that impact the things that you were doing in the business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I started learning all about, you know, basically that every business is a unique asset. I mean, there's lots of variables, but, you know, the most important driver really is the sales price is going to be based on, you know, the trailing 12 months of your, what's called EBITDA. And most people, I think, are starting to know what that term means, but EBITDA stands for earnings before depreciation, interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Right. And so basically, you know, a simple way to look at it is your net income plus, you know, some, some ad backs and, you know, knowing what that cash flow multiple was like, I never tracked that kind of thing in my business. I never knew what my EBITDA was. And, you know, I want to be able to empower sellers to know that they should always know what that number is. And so obviously if the, the, you know, maximizing the value of any potential sale of my business was going to come down to my bottom line EBITDA, um, that's what I focused on. I focused on, you know, really leaning out my operations. I wasn't focused on top line growth, although I, you know, I, I, di I did still grow top line, but I was really focused on that bottom line because I knew that, you know, at the level that my business was going to sell for, you know, it was going to be purely based on that bottom line EBITDA number and a multiple of that. And like, no, super good insights. And I just wanted for some clarification and you might have a couple examples, Kelly, of what you did in your business, but like, and this is for the listeners that might say, okay, well, I need to cut costs now to make this, you know, look like it's bigger. There are ad backs where if you're doing one-time investments, like, you know, building out something that doesn't, that doesn't hurt you in your valuation, or it might hurt your net income that year, but it doesn't hurt your valuation. So you know, you can't cut, I, there was some guy, I, uh, I think it was Ken St. Gennaro, the guy that uh, built the value opportunity profile of, you can't cut your way to value because exactly. someone else, so I, maybe, maybe you can kind of give an example, Kelly, of what you mean by leaning out or systematizing it compared to someone that probably in their head went straight to, Hey, I'm going to slash my way to value. For sure. And I think one example that comes up there pretty prominently is advertising, right? You don't just shut off advertising because you're going to save <laughs> expenses on that, right? 
but you optimize your advertising. You make sure that, you know, if I was operating at, you know, on Amazon, uh, we look at, you know, a term called ACOS, your advertising cost of sale um, for Amazon advertising. And, you know, I was usually running at a, at a break even, which is, is pretty typical on Amazon to drive organic rankings. And so, you know, trying to basically get more out of my ad spend and then scale, you know, spend more on advertising where it was more profitable. So I think advertising is a really good example there, but, you know, certainly there were a lot of, there were a lot of unnecessary like softwares that I was subscribed to think, you know, things like that. You just want to like go through your profit and loss statement and look at all of your operating expenses and think, okay, is this, is this expense really helping me at the end of the day to generate a profit in my business? Because that's the whole purpose of a business expense, right? I love it. So then when you when you kind of had that realization, you now you have got that knowledge of and in the intentional growth framework is the second principle of your financial targets evaluation. Where in your timeline was that? You said it took you 24 months. So like were you six months out? Were you 12 months out, 18 months out? Did you have the ability to then invest in the business to grow that value to to actually get the return of all your effort? And how did how did the strategies that you were implementing get changed based on your knowledge of your financial targets? Well, you know, that's a really important comment, Ryan, because, you know, first of all, Rome isn't built in a day and you really have to dig into your business and find out what those drivers are to increase your value. And, and what I identified, you know, for, for my particular business at that time was streamlining my supply chain and supply chain management and reducing, you know, my COGS, my cost of goods sold. Um, and so those were the areas that I focused on, um, for every business owner, it's going to be different. And so it all comes down to you, you've got to have clean books and good financial bookkeeping and cash flow management to be able to identify, you know, where your money is going to be best spent in, in driving that value. But it's, it's something that is so important. And it took me from, you know, the time that I identified those things and working on them, you know, that's where that 24 months came in, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. So that's why it's so important to be thinking about these things you know, well before you intend to, you know, try to sell your company. So when you, did it help them when you had this knowledge and the clarity to say, okay, now I'm going to focus on these things. I mean, would you, I mean, I'm, was it way different than the things that you were working on before or did it, did it make it easier to make the decisions of what you were working on? It did. It, it allowed me, it allowed me to be very precise and focus on the areas of my business that I was really going to be able to leverage and get the most value out of. Like, for example, I identified that I wasn't going to be launching new products. I wasn't going to be spending money on research and development and product development. Like that's that I had, I had enough of a good product line in my opinion that that wasn't going to be an area of focus for me, but for another business owner, that could be different. So actually that brings up a a couple of good examples. And we've been on a couple of calls where you, (laughs) you've said like, you know, you go to these conferences or trade shows and everybody needs to be everywhere. So explain like how this laser focus makes those, like, what are some things that people shouldn't be doing that might not be value creating because everybody else is doing it or they've got some sort of FOMO going on? Well, I I can tell you that, you know, specifically in the Amazon um, e-commerce world, there are so many shiny objects and that is half the battle is, you know, trying to stay focused and clear those out of your head. And I, I definitely fell victim to that for my first couple of years in business and even, even beyond and still sometimes today I do. Right. <laughs> but it's the, like, people are constantly 
telling you, you've got to be off Amazon. You've got to diversify. You've got to learn how to, you know, sell on your own website. You've got to learn how to get into retail. You know, you've got to learn how to do Facebook marketing, Pinterest marketing. You've got to learn how to do content (laughs) marketing. Like, you know, you have to do all the things, right? And then it's just like a big, it's like a big, huge money grab. And it, it comes back to my initial kind of story of the internet marketing. And it just, over time, you're just in this like total whirlwind of like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore to move the needle in my business. And I definitely was there. And I think a lot of Amazon sellers have been there um, or are still there. And, and it's, it's really, it's really hard just because of the, the, you know, internet age that we live in, you know, information just goes at lightning speed. And there is that huge fear of missing out, like you said, um, that if I don't learn this skill set, you know, then I'm going to be one step behind my competitor. And, you know, that's really, again, what it comes down to knowing what your value drivers are and knowing what's going to move the needle in terms of increasing the value of your business. I love it. Moving the needle and being able to quantify that, which is the value creation, being able to focus and quantify the value creation. Like, Hey, this is my EBITDA. Here's how I'm growing my multiple. So as you're marching towards those longer, more intentional goals of value creation, what was the conversation? Who were you talking to about like, what was the end? What was the end going to look like? Right. Cause you, so you sold the business and you can, maybe we can kind of get into when and how did you start to sell? What was that process like? due diligence types of buyers. I mean, whatever way we want to go with this, Kelly, because you might have known that we've got a variety of listeners here. What is the, what was the triggering event and what, what started the process and who were you talking to? Well, you know, at that two year mark, like I said, that I started doing the planning, I, I would, I would say I spent that first year really just educating myself. I didn't want to go to an intermediary to help me sell my business without like knowing the vernacular, knowing the things I should be doing in my business. Um, so I really spent the time to educate myself and, uh, for better or for worse, I, I feel like it was the right decision for me, but I certainly, again, would love to be able to help people short, shortcut that process so that they can kind of come to the table and, and not have to take, you know, two years of planning and, and education to, you know, be in a position to sell their business. I think it could be done a lot quicker, but you know, I connected with a lot of different resources. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge networker. So I did most of that, you know, just virtually through LinkedIn, you know, meeting a lot of different types of professionals and things like that, that, you know, could help me with, you know, exit planning. And I think, you know, way back then I probably connected with you, but we didn't really start talking until, you know, more recently. And so I don't even know if we were like, if our, if our Kona was even around by the time you were doing well, it, yeah, yeah it, it I don't, I don't recall it coming across my radar because I really didn't find you guys till later. And so, you know, I wish that was a resource that was there for me. And certainly, you know, I wish there was a resource for, for my specific industry, which, you know, as you know, that's what Paul Miller and I are looking to do now is to be that, that voice and that educational source. For so us. as you're having these conversations, Kelly, this is obviously why I've got the team of advisors and principal number five. What were your takeaways? Cause you're probably you know, coffees and Zoom meetings and this and that and the other thing. Like, what were your takeaways as you were learning what these different advisors do and what was good, what was not good, what to watch out for? Because I'm sure there's a lot of other people doing the same stuff. Yeah, well, you you definitely need to have that dream team of advisors. And I would say, you know, in in most industries, including, you know, my industry, you know, you need to have solid bookkeeping. So a great bookkeeper and specifically for Amazon sellers, you need to have somebody that understands how to do e-commerce bookkeeping, which is, you know, um, has its own, uh, unique facets. 
And then you need a good CPA or tax advisor. Sometimes those are the, the same people. Ideally, they are, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes your CPA just prepares your tax returns and they're not giving you any strategic advice. Um, you know, I wish back then that I had had somebody to help me with cash flow management. I think that most Amazon sellers, um, most business owners struggle with that. And so, you know, I know that, you know, if I had found your resource, you guys offer cash flow management and CFO services, like that's something that I think is hugely valuable. I kind of had to learn that kind of on my own with the bookkeeper that I had at the time. Um, you know, he did offer, you know, some CFO you know, kind of, of advice, but I, I really think getting somebody involved in that early on in your exit planning is really valuable. And then of course, a good attorney. And sometimes that's one attorney, just that's your general business counsel. But if you're going to be selling your business, you, you're going to want to have a good mergers and acquisitions attorney. When you were having these calls with these advisors, and sorry, you, you might have a other list. You can continue the list, but I'm just curious as you continue the list, how did you realize what good looks like? I mean, like, cause I'm assuming you didn't just jump right on the first advisor that you guys were meeting with. Yeah. It, it's, it's a lot of time and a lot of vetting. And so, <laughs> you know, that's, that's another thing that, you know, I'm really, you know, wanting to help sellers with is rather than having to go through all that painful vetting myself is like, you know, I have, you know, a really good Rolodex now of trusted advisors and professionals in all of these areas that, you know, can help with this stuff, but it's, it's not easy. And, and it's certainly, you know, my resources might not be the best fit for every single business, but they can at least be a, a stepping stone for, you know, they could probably put them in touch with somebody that would be a good fit for them. You know, there's certain things that are state specific, like I live in California. So when it came time to tax planning and all of that, like there was a whole <laughs> layer of stuff that was involved there. And I needed somebody that knew California, you know, tax issues. But the, the last, the last professional that I didn't mention, but is one of the most important is your in, your intermediary, the 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 company that you're going to use to help you actually sell your business. And depending on the type of business and the level that you're at, you know, sometimes that might be a business broker, other times that might be an investment banking firm or a mergers and acquisitions advisor. So you know that has really there are a lot of options out there now in the e-commerce Amazon seller space for that. And I feel like most Amazon sellers don't know about these different types of intermediaries. And I would love to be able to provide some education, you know, as time goes on about that, what's the difference between, for example, a broker and an M&A advisor. What did you realize as you were like probably going down this process with the business, like how did you envision the whole thing unfolding? And like, like as in who would be the buyer, what would be the deal structure? Were there any kind of takeaways that, or like lessons learned as you were prepping it up, ready to go? And then how, what was the pro, what was the actual process like to sell the business? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I did use an M&A advisor to help me sell my business and I absolutely um, cannot recommend them enough. I, you know, they, they deal with a certain, you know, type and level of business. Um, but they are big into the e-commerce and Amazon space. And, and, you know, prior to working with them though, I had done all this education on my own and really studied, you know, what entailed in the due diligence process. So I went into it knowing it was going to be a marathon and it's, you know, going through selling your business is, a lot of work. It really is. But if you have a good intermediary by your side, they're going to make that process seamless and much easier for you. And 
I would say that with my particular circumstance, we really did all the due diligence up front before we ever put it out to market. So you and the investment bankers did? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So like what like maybe kind of give the listeners what does that mean? What is due diligence? I mean, I've talked a lot about that on the show, but everybody's different everybody's situation is different and especially who they're hiring. So like what like what was <laughs> What was your experience? Because it's never fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, like I felt like we went into the due diligence period very, very prepared. And again, it's it's going to be unique for everybody, the, the, time, the length of time that goes on and, and what can happen during that process. But um, because we went to market with basically, you know, a whole um, web portal full of everything you could possibly want to know about my business under the hood, you know, financials, trademarks. I mean, everything you could want to know about the business was there to, to be reviewed. And so you're basically instilling trust in your buyer that, you know, everything that we've represented is true and there's, there's nothing to hide. And, you know, I actually spent the week with my buyer. We arranged during the due diligence process. He came out to California. Um, we met every day. And we went through, you know, some of his questions and that really built that trust. So I think that due diligence is, is the time where you are wanting to have all your ducks in a row. You don't want any surprises coming up. Um, and so the more you can be prepared for that beforehand, the better. So, and that should be what the intermediary is doing is preparing, like pre premeditating those, those questions. Exactly. Open. So was it, was it a listing? Did they slap you on a listing or did they go find these buyers? Was it, were they strategic buyers? Were they individual investors? Were they private equity firms? Like what was the actual, so you got this web portal, you got all this due diligence loaded in there after you and the bankers like went through all this stuff. What was the actual process to get you in front of that buyer that you started meeting with? Yeah. So, you know, working with an M&A advisor and I would just have to assume that the process is is similar. It's a lot different than working with a broker in that they're not just, you know, emailing your listing or creating a listing even for that matter and just, you know, shoving it off to some email list. So basically, you know, we spent, I would say the first, I would say two to three months of our engagement building out all of that, those due diligence materials. So gathering all of that stuff and them you know, asking me the hard questions if there were things that came up so that, you know, there would be no surprises when we actually showed this. And then they built what's called an offering memorandum. It's basically a, a huge marketing package that it was really robust and basically was just like a huge deck on, you know, all the great things about my brand and why somebody should acquire it. And when they did launch the offering memorandum, they do it to, you know, they've already identified who is going to be a good fit versus just sending it out to the world. And then they do the selling, you know, they were very thorough. They got on all the calls. I only ever got on the call with the individual who ended up acquiring my brands. Um, once he had submitted an indication of intent, which is kind of like a preliminary step before the, the letter of intent. And so I wasn't just fielding all these different questions from different potential acquirers. It was... What was that list like, Kelly? Was it, was it, was it private equity firms or was it just mainly strategic buyers, other Amazon sellers? Like what, what, like did they, did they share with you what the list was like? And yes. Yeah. Well, they didn't share. They shared with me like the type based on, you know, I had a seven figure business. So, and you know, the, the target 
valuation that I had was for seven figures. So, you know, it really depends on, you know, to, to like attract a strategic that that's usually a, a much higher level, more like an eight figure business. It depends, but you know, my, my brand, they thought there was some possibility that we could attract a strategic buyer, but they really identified that the, the pool of potential buyers for my business was going to be, you know, a corporate professional, you know, looking um, to acquire an internet Amazon based business. And, you know, that is kind of who they identified and then worked within that realm of their network. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally makes sense. And I think, cause they even getting educated on like who the different types of buyers are. I mean, there, there's, I've, I've talked to too many people where they think that it's going to be like this short list of strategic buyers and it's just wildly different than they thought. And that's yeah. the point, right? I mean, you just, it's having someone out there shaking the trees for you. Yeah. And it's, and again, knowing being educated about all the different types of buyers and, you know, your course is great and going into that, I mean, really influences the, the process. Like if you're going to be acquired by private equity, it's going to be a completely different process and experience than selling to, you know, like, you know, an acquire that purchase my brand. So, um, you know, you really want that fit and you want an intermediary who can identify who, who the best fit for you is, who's going to see the value in your brand and pay you top dollar for that. Did your, did the pricing or terms and conditions or deal structure change throughout the due diligence? I mean, what was the, what was the due diligence and that, the, that conversation like? Yeah, I would say during due diligence, the things that came up the most in terms of negotiating points and things were, if things did get a little bit heated, were on like the non-compete agreements, you know, and obviously drafting, you know, the, the main contract is the asset purchase agreement. So there's a lot that goes into that. And so, you know, we had a lot of give and take. That's definitely a negotiating time frame that you have to get through and you have to be willing to, you know, know when you want to play hardball and know when you're going to, you know, basically succumb to the other party's demands. Um, but you know, I, I would say that your goal should be to have a successful due diligence period that it's going to result in some renegotiation, but it's going to, it's going to go smoothly because the parties come to that period, trusting each other. Yeah. Huge. I mean, the trust is, I mean, cause the moment that you don't trust someone that how do you even pursue a deal. And like, it's especially when you're handing off and especially if there's like, if you're handing off that to your company and then there's seller financing or any of that stuff, I mean, like it's it, or COVID. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So after you like, you know, cause we've got probably what, 10 minutes left or something it is what, what was it after you had closed the deal? What was your experience? And like, it'll maybe kind of get us to where you are today. And some of the, the lessons learned, like, what is your mission behind this? Cause like you learned a lot, right? Like you said, you, you got your PhD in how to sell a business. I'd say the typical way that people do, obviously we're trying to change some of that, but like, what was, you know, maybe get get us to up to where you are today. Yeah. So, you know, after the sale of my brand, you know, something that was negotiated in due diligence was basically the amount of time that I would stay on to help with the transition. So that time was 60 days, which is pretty standard. So I stayed on for 60 days. Our, our agreement was basically five hours a week, but, you know, I don't think that I, you know, my, the, the person who acquired my company, he's just really understanding and I made it really, you know, seamless for him to kind of take over. And so, you know, after going through that, I, <laughs> I would say that, you know, looking back on the whole experience, it was like, 
I was super proud that I went through it and did it and it was successful. And I felt really good about, you know, the, um, cause your brand is like your baby, you know, and I, it's still sometimes so hard to think that it's not mine anymore. And so I stay in touch with him regularly. Um, you know, I really care and am, you know, mentally, emotionally invested in his success and want, you know, he's got big plans to grow it to an eight, nine figure company. So, you know, I, I wish him all the best in that. And I really think he'll be able to do it. And for me now, I just have this peace of mind that, you know, I, I de-risked my situation. And I, every, every time you have all of your, your money tied up anywhere, whether it's an investment or business, it's, it's a risk. And so I was able to take those chips off the table and breathe a sigh of relief of, you know, having some financial freedom. Certainly I'm, I'm not done. I'm just getting started in terms of, you know, what I want to do as an entrepreneur, but like, I don't, anything I do, I can do with a sense of like, I don't have to do this to keep the lights on. Like I, I want to do this and it's a really freeing feeling. And I feel like I'm so free that I can go and pursue whatever I want to without that hamster wheel feeling anymore. So a little bit different even than the hourly rate too, right? Oh my exactly. God. Exactly. Is there anything that you would have done differently along the process? And did you realize like throughout that, the sale, like, could you, could there have been other value creating strategies that you implement or is there oh, anything? For sure. For sure. I mean, I wish that I had from the very beginning built my business with an end in mind or an exit strategy. Just having that exit strategy allows you to become laser focused on exactly what you need to be doing to make your business as successful as possible. And, you know, like I know you've shared with me, Ryan, that like many of the, the clients and students that you've worked with, you know, they go through this process of taking your course, you know, with the intention of selling their business. And then they, they come to the conclusion that, you know what, like, I know exactly what I need to do now. I don't feel like I'm on the hamster wheel because I'm laser focused and I don't want to sell it actually. So it's, it's, it's allowing you to have that freedom of knowing, like, I don't need to chase this shiny object. I know exactly what I need to do to make this business successful. And having that clarity um, is very, very powerful and freeing. So as we're about to wrap up here, what, what's the best way to get in touch with you? What are you doing now? What's, what is a life? I mean, the, the podcast title is not life after business anymore, but what is your current life that you're designing? Well, I have my own consultancy called Digital Shelf Strategy, and that really is, you know, a one-on-one consulting service that I do. It's consulting and coaching where I help Amazon sellers with all things related to Amazon, basically optimizing their business, um, anything that they would need in terms of optimizing their operations, increasing profitability. Um, I have just vetted resources and service providers that I can recommend to help them with that. And then of course, with exit planning. So helping them navigate that and then connecting them with any resources they would need. But after I started doing that kind of on my own, I realized that, you know, this would be a lot more fun to do with somebody else. And so my really good friend, Paul Miller, who a lot of people um, in my space know, he's got a very successful brand called Cozy Phones. You know, we I've got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's such a great product, and he created that whole category, and it's just that's so amazing. But you know, he is now starting on his journey of exit planning, and so we thought, wow, wouldn't it be really cool to you know follow his journey 
of exit planning with cozy phones, you know, share that with our audience on a podcast. And um, so we're going to be launching a podcast called Amazing Exits. And we don't have a specific date, but it will be sometime this summer. And then, as you know, we've been working very closely with you because you and your partner, Pat, have created the best in class educational resources along with, you know, CFO services for business owners. And, you know, there's no reason why Paul and I would want to go out and create these things when they already exist. You guys have created them. So we want to be able to share these with our audience, with our industry and really help people be prepared. We want to make exit planning sexy and fun and not this like dreaded thing, like, oh my gosh, you know, it's, it really, it's so fun to go through the process and to really kind of navigate that and realize, you know, what your goals and drivers are. It gives you so much clarity and freedom, like I said before. So we're just excited to get the word out and we're going to have, you know, top experts. We're going to have other businesses who have exited. We're going to have, you know, great professionals like you on, um, and be able to offer, you know, all the resources that Amazon and e-commerce sellers would need to not only optimize their businesses, but prepare them for sale if they choose to do that. Well, I think it just, it, it's so fun to have people like you and Paul out there that are like, I mean, what Pat and I have done is created a neutral educational of like, Hey, this is how valuations and value growth work. Here's all the exits. So then you can intentionally just do whatever you want. Like that's truly what it is, but it takes people like yourself. We're like, we're not experts in Amazon. Like we would never say that we are, but here's how businesses work. Here's how businesses should run. Here's how to grow value. And then you layer on the ex- the industry experts or, or trade industry or the trade specifics that are, that are in like so niched in and what you guys are doing and you can take and run with it then. And it, I just, I think it's gonna be fun because I think it, what's interesting about um, and maybe we can just kind of end on this because like, you know, your industry, Kelly, when you and I started talking, Amazon resellers are like way okay with the word exit. Because like the, the reality is what we teach is, well, you can do whatever you want. Where like a lot of the people that in the main street, it's like, hey, I want to keep this for a long time. But the 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 process is the same. It's literally exactly, exactly the same. But you, your industry is so okay with the conversation that it's just going to be fun to watch how it all unfolds and how people take take um, hold to it because you know they're they're out there grinding to grow value. I mean, I get and and actually they they more got a layers of focus on an exit. I don't know if you got any comments on on that because I just noticed that the industries are very different. Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I think that Amazon sellers and e-commerce sellers are very comfortable with this notion. You know, there are some good resources out there now that talk about exit planning and so forth. And, you know, I think there's a large majority of e-commerce and Amazon sellers that, that know full well that their biggest payday in this type of a business is going to be when they sell. And so there's many people that are, are, are ready for that and want to know how to do it and, and maximize the value, but they don't know where to go or where to start. They just think that they just go to, you know, whatever broker and that's all there is. And, and there's not. So we want to really be you know, able to educate people on that, make it fun, and also be able to leverage all these amazing, you know, educational resources that you guys have already put together with your intentional growth course. I mean, as you know, Paul and I have both gone through that. We're going to be applying that to Cozy Phones and to be able to share that journey with our audience, I think is going to be so valuable. At least I hope it will be. So as the listeners want to follow you, your journey, as they're going to follow Cozy Phones, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Where can they follow you and, uh, and where should they go? Yeah, so they can go to my LinkedIn profile, which is at Kellyanne Fedio, K-E-L-L-I-A-N-N-E-F-E-D-I-O. 
They can also go to Digital Shelf Strategy and schedule a complimentary call with me. And then they can, I would love it if they would go to our new podcast landing page. It's called amazingexits.com and just sign up so that they can stay informed of when we launch and when we get going with all that. Excited for you guys. It's going to be fun to watch it. Thanks. We are too. Thanks for coming on, Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a blast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Big takeaway is check out our Intentional Growth Virtual Cohort. We're going to be kicking off. It starts September 15th. There are four calls over four weeks. It's $14.50 and you get the course and you'll you'll always have access to the course, but you're going to join six to 10 entrepreneurs and we cap it off at 10. Uh, We had eight in the last cohort that we just wrapped up, but we're going to go over together the materials. So you're going to have roughly about two, two and a half hours worth of work in between calls. You jump on a bunch of Q&A, Pat Hobby, my partner and I are going to be going over case studies, materials, conversations, and any of the questions people had in between the calls. It's it's an absolute blast. I really enjoyed the the last cohort. So if you want to check it out, go to arcona.io, go to the digital course tab, and then go down and then click on the digital course plus cohort. And the first 10 to sign up will kick it off on September 15th. Thanks for tuning in and I will talk to you next week.